yeah, I don't know what else to say about that. Like, there's Harden Simmons has been on the bad side of this, that game often, and it's sort of like, what can they, what can they do to, you know, what can they do to win it? No matter how well they play, they sort of always end up on the uh, on the short side of it. But that to me seemed like pretty legit, fair and square way to lose or win. UMHB is going to race the field goal unit out there. Oh. Nine seconds and counting, and they're going to have to hurry and line up. This is going to be a 42-yard attempt to win the game by Anthony Avila. And they just get it away. The kick is up. And good. Mary Hart Baylor wins it at the buzzer. A 42-yard field goal, and the crew has stopped. <laughs> Simmons 15-14 is the final. We practice that 14-second field goal all the time, uh, and we got it down there. And you know, we took a long shot the first uh, play, and I said, "Steve, all we need to do is get us in field goal range." And J Jason, the guys did so. And then Anthony went out there like he always does, kicks it. As soon as I was two minutes, I was just focused and knew that we had to be out there because, like Coach said, we always practice that and. Uh, coming into half, all the guys are telling me to keep my head up, and it's not how you start, it's how you finish. So, appreciate all the team. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, our twice-weekly look at the largest division of college football. We welcome you to podcast number 254, the one with, you just heard it, the game-winning field goal. It's our podcast for October 28th of 2019, and thank you for joining us. I'm the executive editor of D3Football.com, and the person with all those tweets on Saturday about this game, I'm Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan, the former player, longtime co-host, sidekick, whatever you'd like to call it. Yeah, the guy with the the football gravitas. Those are not two things that go together, probably. But uh, that was UMHB's webcast with the call, as you heard it, and post-game news conference audio from Pete Fredenberg and Anthony Avila from ESPN Central Texas. And Keith, I'm just happy we live in a modern age which makes the discussion, intelligent discussion of this weekend possible, where you've got enough video evidence of Division Three football games made readily available for me to make this statement. The players were set. Snap was off in time. Kick was good. And number one, Mary Harton Baylor survived to beat number 15, Harden Simmons, 15-14. Yeah, and I know that's a thinly or not so thinly veiled reference to an era 20 years ago where we had highly debated game-ending field goal uh, in the postseason. And uh, video was available then, but it took a little longer to come out. There was an, also around that same time in 2001, there was another highly uh, debated ending of a of a uh, semifinal game, oh, yeah. which the video didn't really come out till Wednesday or Thursday, and then once you saw the video, there really wasn't anything left to debate except by that time the wrong team had was already headed to the Stag Bowl. And so, yeah, the fact that we live in an era where we can take a quick look at this video on Twitter, and, and you've uh, retweeted it, Mary Harden Baylor has tweeted it. Um, you can look and you can see the the field goal team is set with about three ticks left on the clock. The snap comes with about two. And, uh, and the kick is off and true. And then you can listen to the Mary Harden Baylor crowd go crazy because don't forget, that's the number one team in the country playing its arch rival and, and a rival that had already lost the game this season and really needed this win to get back to where it's used to being, which is right in the playoff mix. It's a, uh, a, a top-notch offense that had been held on both sides of the, of the ball, had been held to, uh, to just a, a 
you know, a couple touchdowns on the day or if, you know, it was a 15, 14 final. So that kick is probably as big as it gets in uh, in week eight of a D3 regular season. If you want to look up the video Keith was talking about, you should Google Division Three football time stood still. We'll give you half a second to do that while we remind you that this edition of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by Gotta Have It, our friends at GottaHaveItFanFoams.com with the officially licensed 3D foam fan wall signs that uh, include, for example, a team we've just spent a couple minutes talking about. We'll spend a couple minutes talking about Mary Harden Baylor coming out of the break as well. We'll be talking about Mount Union because if your pot, if this podcast is the first time you've heard about it, well, we'll save the news for outside of the promo. But, you know, long story short here, uh, all four of uh, last year's national semifinal teams already available. East Texas Baptist University as well. If you're a fan of, say, uh, Purdue or Army or Navy or Air Force or oh, North Dakota State, say you're an FCS fan, I understand that North Dakota State has a fairly decent football team at some other level of football that I don't really follow. That is a fact. So go to get that stuff at uh, Gotta Have It fanfoams.com they are great they look great on your wall they look great at your tailgate and if you are someone who's in marketing at a division three school make sure that you get this set up because uh, alumni associations love this go to got to have it fanfoams.com and uh, let them know we sent you all right so ramifications of this game obviously the status quo kind of maintains itself in terms of the asc standings right in terms of w's and l's it's a W on the Mary Harden Baylor side. In terms of the D3Football.com top 25, this was the day in which the I think the biggest switch of number one votes uh, that did not involve a team losing a game happened, uh, in which uh, seven teams switched or seven voters switched their votes from. Uh, from Mount Union or from Mary Harden Baylor to Mount Union. The last time I looked this up, the the previous high that I could find was between week five and week six in 2009, when uh, three voters moved from Mount Union to UW Whitewater after Mount Union beat Capital 28 to 21. Uh, Mount Union eventually uh, lost to Whitewater in the Stag Bowl that year. And I just wanted to talk. We talk occasionally, Keith, about style points, and I wanted to uh, you know just throw that out here now because as a voter. I want to believe that the team I'm voting number one is capable of winning the national title. I look back at 2016, for example, for comparison. Uh, UMHB hoisted the trophy at the end of that season. Note how I deftly avoid saying they won the title. That way, if the appeal gets denied later, then this statement is still accurate. Regardless, uh, Mary Harden-Baylor only beat Harden-Simmons by five that year, 20-15, to about the same time of the year, but they preceded it by just annihilating everybody else they played, including a game against Linfield. They had averaged 60.3 points per game up until that point, and they hadn't missed a beat. This year, Mary Harden-Baylor has definitely missed a beat or two on occasion, and this game coming on top of that makes, uh, I think, well, clearly made some, uh, made some voters second guess. Well, and I think it gives the voters a piece of data that they didn't have previously when comparing Mountain Union and Mary Harden Baylor. And I'm assuming those are the two teams uh, that that were at the top of everyone's poll to start the season because they played in a fairly close national championship game last season, brought their star quarterbacks and a lot of of their roster back. Uh, For me, I made the switch several weeks ago from Mary Harden Baylor, which started out number one for me to Mountain Union. Um, but the piece of data that that you need to to finish that comparison uh, and not just do it on on spec 
uh, sort of the way I was doing was I it was kind of I was kind of going off uh, what I felt was going to happen, not what I had seen happen. But now you've seen Mary Mountain Union has their game against John Carroll, which is another ranked team in the poll. Mary Harden Baylor has a game against Harden Simmons, which uh, which may or may not be ranked on many voters' ballots, but was certainly the next best team and had been ranked um, at, a, at a point this season. Mary Harden-Baylor need a last-second field goal. Mountain Union won 37-14. I also think if you take a look at, at uh, for having the style points discussion, you take a look at the two Mary Harden-Baylor games, which they played relatively closely. This one, this past Saturday, 15-14, you want to give them credit for beating really good teams, right? You don't want to ding teams that that beat other good teams or teams that play other good teams right in theory um playing at your level you know for the old boxing analogy right like great matchups make great fights or whatever right like it has to be it can't just be one team beating the snot out of everyone once that team plays someone at its level or close to its level and beats that team that's when you really know they're good right so I think you look at this hard this Harden Simmons win and you say Mary Harden Baylor, whether they had to duke it out and win it at the end, that's a that's a, a plus in their column. But you go back now and this Bellhaven one where really Bellhaven is not on the level of Harden Simmons or a John Carroll. And and you say, well, they also struggled on that one too. Now it's much easier to make the comparison when you look at Mountain Union's schedule. They haven't struggled with anyone. They didn't struggle with John Carroll. They're one really tough opponent, and they certainly haven't struggled uh, with anyone else. On their schedule, this their result this past weekend, 27-0 against Heidelberg. It was rainy. It was a mess. And 27 may not seem like a lot, but the zero is certainly pretty impressive for Mountain Union's defense. So I think it's it's not that hard of a of a decision for voters to make with the available data. Voters are also free to do whatever they feel. Someone may decide at some point. St. John's or Whitewater is is the number one team. You know, voters are free to to do whatever they want, but I think the consensus now with the available given data makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, you know, we have talked and we've we've seen the poll do this in the past, right? In a situation where people are less unsure about the team at the top than a team such as Harden Simmons, which played a game like they did on Saturday, might well move its way up the poll. And in some ballots it did so uh, Harden Simmons right now sits on 22 of the 25 ballots they are as high as number five there's a, a voter who has uh, them at number five and still has Mary Harden Baylor at number one and, and that's a logical conclusion you could draw from the uh, from the available data uh, and then there's you know a lot of places in which uh, you know Harden Simmons is number 22 on a couple of ballots uh, they're number 20 on a on a ballot uh, and you know that is the other thing, of course, is that Harden Simmons is a team that has lost two games, and that makes things slightly different in a voter's mind as well. I'm sure. Yeah, I don't have Harden Simmons on the ballot at all. Same thing with St. Thomas. Um, teams that have lost two games at this point in the season, even though they played a tough schedule, um, you probably maybe I should reconsider, given that they're one point away or a last second field goal away from what's the number two team on my ballot. But they also have the Texas Lutheran loss, where where, where you have to contend with that. And right now there's a long trail of, I, you know, I get lost sometimes in these in these um, trails of this team's beating this team, this team's beating this team, so they deserve to be in the poll first unless there's some other uh, results that that sort of mitigate or, or uh, negate that. And um, right now, you know, I'd have to take Texas Lutheran uh, as a team I vote for before Harden-Simmons because they beat them 38-27. And right now I don't have Texas Lutheran ranked, therefore I don't have Harden-Simmons ranked. But – 
probably as much credit as you can get for losing a game and bumping up into the poll, this is probably the time you would give it to Harden-Simmons. So I certainly don't have any qualms with anybody who does have them in their top 25. Right now, I'm just throwing out one more tidbit before we stop talking about the uh, the very top of the D3Football.com top 25. We have five teams uh, receiving number two votes. Mount Union has nine of them. Mary Harden Baylor has nine. Whitewater and St. John's have three apiece. And somebody has Wheaton number two. And, you know, I wouldn't call back that person and say, did you make a mistake? I think that's uh, perfectly reasonable. People who early adopt this podcast, who listen to it at the very beginning of the day on Monday, are going to hear this before the AFCA Top 25 comes out. That's the coaches poll. We occasionally refer to it as such on this podcast. That is a poll that, you know, we talked about how rarely... Our pollsters have dropped uh, a number of teams or a team, a number of first place votes without them having lost the AFCA. The coaches almost never do. So I'd be very interested to see how they deal with uh, this when their poll comes out. And it's interesting that coaches are the ones who are very win loss or it's all about the win uh, oriented because um, small tangent, if you don't mind, I coach youth league sports and you see through coaching just looking at anything from a coach's eye it's certainly not by any comparison to college football but when you look at something through a coach's eyes your 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 team is a collection of people who you're trying to get to play to their best level and if at some point you put everyone in the right places and everyone does their best you some you know good things happen for your team and it's i feel badly or less good the way we write off teams because of early losses now because i think that the the end result the way you get your team playing by the later in the season at the end of the season sometimes uh is more meaningful than uh than having a complete clean slate uh the entire way but uh, as such uh, because we have 247 teams and very few of them uh, can make it into the postseason they really have to be flawless or almost flawless um, you know, through, throughout, you can only have one loss to pretty much sink your chances, as is the case for Harden Simmons for St. Thomas, probably teams that will finish the season in the top 25, but out of the field of 32. We had another near upset uh, go down on Saturday evening, a game between Cortland and St. John Fisher and a game, you know, which I had my eye on because St. John Fisher, of course, uh, had played uh, had played Ithaca really tough and uh, nearly come away with that win at the end. St. John Fisher, very similar in there in that against Cortland. Cortland uh, did some of the things that they have done well all season, including getting a, a, punt, bo- a punt block return for a touchdown in the third quarter as part of a, a, a pretty crazy sequence. And then this play at the end of the game. Ready to go. He throws toward Blake at the pylon. And it's incomplete. There is a flag on the field, however. Zeros on the clock. Let's see what the flag is. Blake had it in his hands for a moment. It fell to the turf. And now we await the call. And it's over. St. John Fisher broadcast on the call there as uh, Cortland breaks up the pass in the end zone. And then eventually uh, the flag was noted that uh, St. John Fisher called for holding and it wouldn't have uh, counted anyway. But a a crazy sequence in that Cortland kicked a field goal with 23 seconds left to go up five. And then a bad kickoff, a not great kickoff compounded by 
a penalty, puts St. John Fisher at the 50, and I thought we were going to see another, uh, you know, another team snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Well, I thought the the more interesting part of this game, not to discount the end, because of course the end is always the super interesting part, but I thought there was just the, the second quarter of this game uh, was amazing. Cortland strikes with uh, two Brett Segala, two Cole Burgess touchdown passes, a 50-yarder and a 64-yarder within four minutes of each other early in the second quarter. So they go, they go up 21-10 early in this game, and it looked like it's going to be a Cortland runaway. St. John Fisher bounces back with three touchdowns before the half and uh, and makes it a 30-21 game. So all of a sudden, Cortland State goes from up 11 to down 9 at the half, and uh, that punt block really changed things because that brought – Cortland back, uh, you know, back within two, and then they put together a, a ten-play scoring drive to go back ahead, and it was back and forth from there. And I think this is one of those times, and, and maybe I'll get to it a little bit more when we in in the part of the podcast where we designate uh, that we're going to talk about the poll. But I think that um, for Cortland, this is a good win. And even though St. John Fisher is four and four, those losses are to Cortland. There's a loss in there to Ithaca, to, to Brockport, to all, all teams who are having outstanding seasons. So. Um, they, that's a tough four and four for, for lack of a better way to put it. And if you look at those games, they gave Ithaca a push, they gave Cortland a push. And so those are, those are good wins um, for Cortland and for Ithaca. Quick turn back for you. When we go to MetLife stadium in a couple of weeks to see Ithaca and Cortland, are we going to see two unbeaten teams? I think it's looking increasingly unlikely and, um, not just because of Cortland's performance. Well, we talked about it a little bit in the Friday pod. And if, if you were with us on Friday, you know, maybe increasingly unlikely is not the right way to say it, but Cortland just doesn't have an easy path to, uh, to MetLife. And this one was a tough one at St. John Fisher. They have Brockport next week. Then they're, then they're at Hartwick. Uh, so that one probably not that difficult, but I think uh, having to play Alfred uh, two weeks ago or a week ago, and then St. John Fisher. And then this Brockport game, if they get through these three unscathed, then yeah, I think we have an unbeaten, uh, unbeaten matchup and uh you know Ithaca um they're through the tougher part of their schedule it felt like but they've got union and they got to go to RPI so those aren't e- easy wins either and I think um we're I'm hoping for a, a matchup of nine and no teams uh for a conference title playoff seeding possibly a you know, probably a one seed would be on the line in that one uh you're looking at 42,000 plus coming to that game which would set the all-time d3 attendance record Love to have nine and O teams there, but I don't think uh, if either one of these two teams stumbles, first of all, they're not out of the playoff picture at that point. Uh, they'll be they'll still be able to play their way back in at MetLife if they have one stumble, uh, most likely. And uh, I don't I don't think that's going to dampen the crowd much at all. No, and that 42,000 is the latest total that we have in terms of number of seats sold for that game, the Cortica Jug game coming up in week 11. Uh, any other week, uh, this would be one of the top two stories, possibly, uh, in that uh, Linfield extended its uh, streak of consecutive winning seasons to 64 on Saturday, pretty much having its way with Pacific Lutheran, especially in the second half of a game that ended up being a 42 to 10 final. Keith, obviously, you know, even though an early season loss to Redlands, Linfield comes back and just obliterates Puget Sound and Willamette by the uh, combined score of 154 to 22. So, you know, this is one of those things where the outcome of this is not necessarily in doubt. I guess what's ahead for Linfield is a little bit more important at this point. Well, yeah, at, at you know where they are in the season is uh, 
in the in the mix in the in the thick of things right now they're pretty much one of those teams where you can say uh you know all their dreams are still in front of them even though they had the early loss and they've dropped they've dropped significantly in the poll we have not spent a lot of time talking about them or individual linfield players um but they are looking pretty good offensively the past four games really 52 77 77 and 42 they've got lewis and clark Next week, they should be okay with that one, uh, going against their old head coach, Jay Losey. Um, And then they're at Whitworth, and I think that's the one we'll focus on. George Fox has become a pretty good game for them. Uh, but Linfield's got a chance, of course, to win the Northwest Conference. And even if they get a weird seed, um, you know, always a dangerous team. Now, I'm, I, have a, I have a question about um, Linfield, and I wonder if I can phrase this right off the cuff. Okay. Would you rather be 64 – straight winning seasons and the occasional national championship or would you rather have like a like a run say like whitewater did and then have like a history you know uh, maybe that's maybe rowan is a better example but they didn't win one but like a run where you're good for a really 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 good for a while and then you know go back to being kind of okay for for the rest or would you rather i mean and have or have like one or two championship seasons then four or five or uh you know, I don't know what a better comparison would be, but would you rather just have that consistently good and maybe every once in a while you win a national championship or would you rather have one real, real high spike? Well, that's interesting too because uh, in a streak of winning seasons, you know, there are going to be some five and fours in there, right? And there are four, six and threes in that uh, stretch in just the lifespan of D3football.com. I would guess, of course, and there is one national title, so there is there is one of those that uh, that you can point to and you can uh, hang on the mantle. You're not going to hang wallet in bronze, but uh, you get the picture. It's not a it's not a fan foam for goodness sake. Um, I think I would probably rather be Whitewater. It, I may be I may have my opinion tinged right now because Whitewater is still on the edge of being in that space. You know, if yeah. the if the question is Rowan. I don't think I want to be Rowan with four or whatever national runners up and no titles and right now struggling to be over 500. I would definitely prefer Whitewater, uh, Whitewater's history over Linfield also because I'm not 64 years old. Uh, you know, some of those years would not have as much resonance with me, should we say? Yeah, and it's probably an imperfect question because you're not 64, but also because there's no other team that has the you know, it would be like in the NFL if you said, would you rather be the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and have won like one Super Bowl in 2002 and then be crappy for another 15 years or 20 years or however long it's been? Or would you rather, um, you know, be like a consistently good franchise that's never won anything? But I guess it doesn't quite apply here. But I thought about ways to frame the the success of Linfield that matter to folks outside of of Oregon. Because that that record is something that they're that they're very proud of, and for, for plenty of good reason. Uh, it's the longest streak of winning seasons in college football, not just in D three, and um, it it matters. But at the same time, it's like right, unless you were followed them for all sixty four years. When I'm sixty four, how much does it matter to you? Like within a small span, if you just came to D three football in two thousand ten or twenty fifteen. You know, you just want to know how good were they in the years that I've been paying attention. Well, I'll let you know when I'm 64. Are we still going to be doing the pod then? Game ball. Game ball. Game ball. Game ball.
game balls. And it's time for game balls. And game my game balls. ball is, is going to go to Anthony Avila and also to Luke Porman and Peter Kamani because those guys are the kicker, the holder, and the long snapper for Mary Harden Baylor. These guys all made that field goal happen at the end of the game. It takes a village to make a field goal. I'm sure somebody has said that at some point. That's the group that got it done for Mary Harden Baylor. And if for some reason you missed the first 23 minutes of this podcast, that was a field goal that enabled Mary Harden Baylor to beat Harden Simmons 15 to 14. Yeah, I don't know if we've ever done this in the history of the podcast, but I, I'd like to cheat and also uh, nominate the, the same group or just special teamers in general, because I, I think, uh, we certainly glaze over them because they're the, a small percentage of the game, although there's a special teams coach there right now that has the percentage on the tip of his tongue. 22% of your players are special teams plays, and they tilt games and this many. You know, there's some analytics and some uh, some statistics out there for uh, for special teamers. But I do think that it's no accident that the number one team, or a, as it were, the number two team in the country, perfectly executes a run-on-the-field, game-winning field goal because that's the type of thing that most good teams and I would say majority of D3 teams have in their special teams practice, whichever whatever we, day of the week, say Thursday, you have a, a, the end of practice, you go through scenarios, you'll do like two minutes, um, you might do like a blitz period, and then there'll be like a special teams period, and that's one of the things you should you do at the end of your special teams. Sometimes you'll do um, – well, there are a handful of scenarios that special teams coaches will – I don't want to go off on a tangent about special teams practices in particular, but that's not an accident that they made that, that they did it flawlessly. And I think we should give them a little bit of credit. And I also don't think it's an accident that a punt block sways the Cortland game and that their special teams plays, whether they be kick returns or two point runbacks or uh, all kinds of things, you know, punt protections and, and um, kickoffs and punts in certain situations where, the really good teams, and I, you know, it's probably it's cliche, but really good teams don't glaze over that. They're just as good at special teams as they are at offense and defense. And I think it, it's worth highlighting with a with a double game ball because one guy doesn't get set, one guy uh, doesn't make a kick, one kick goes forty two yards instead of forty three, and the whole entire D three pole is all up up You know, there's upheaval. The playoff picture is different. Uh, there's so many different things that change from that. So that 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 is, uh, you know, an example of how much special teams matters, even though we tend to glaze over it. Yeah, I don't think we've ever had a daily double in the game balls. Two other uh, just uh, kick returns to start the game that I'll throw out here in this spot before we move on. Wilkes scored on a 93-yard kick return to start the game, and they needed all of those points. They eventually beat Misericordia in overtime. And then uh, Delaware Valley started with a 98-yard kick return for a touchdown to open the game. They you know, they needed those points, but then they didn't need any of the rest as they beat Lebanon Valley 51-3. to My team on the rise in the poll. This was actually kind of hard to come by. We obviously had some big news in this week uh, that allowed a couple of teams to move down, uh, but I didn't have anybody who I thought I needed to move up based on what they specifically did this week. So here I will say that uh, St. John's and Whitewater both moved up on my ballot this week, and perhaps if you're a savvy listener, you can make some deductions about how the rest of my top five looked. 
Yeah, I didn't make any changes to my top four, but I do think we now have the data to conclusively say Mount Union has beaten its ranked opponent handily. UMHB has squeaked by its version of same. But I also think UMHB is probably more than most teams, a team that worries about development in season than, than, more elite, than most elite teams do. They tinker with everyone up to and including the quarterback as they go. So them winning by a hair doesn't necessarily preclude them from winning at all in December. The bigger top four concern for me at this point, now that we're deep enough in the season that we can start to sketch out what brackets might look like, is if St. John's and Whitewater are your other two top four teams, are they on a collision course to meet in the quarterfinals of a West heavy bracket instead of in the semis? And if so, is that fair? Remember last season, St. John's and UMHB played arguably the best game of the playoffs in the quarterfinals. Uh, you know, maybe that's another conversation for another day. Since, But since all 25 teams on my ballot won, there were no significant risers, and I felt like discussing that here. Yeah, and uh, moving on to uh, teams that will take a fall. That wasn't flying. That was falling with style. On the ballot is pretty similar, right? Uh, you know, obviously uh, you could uh, and did drop. I did drop Mary Harden Baylor. We've kind of talked about that a little bit. Um, one team that did fall in the overall poll, poll by another spot stayed steady in mine was Wesley. Wesley just surviving uh, in overtime against Montclair State, uh, barely hanging on to win that game. They slipped another spot in the overall, um, but I've had them down in basically the same spot, more or less the entire time uh, this season, uh, ever since that uh, Wesley-Delaware Valley game was basically fought to a draw through three overtimes and and one in the fourth. I've had those two teams in lockstep somewhere down in the 20s, and uh, they finally, uh, you know, Wesley has continued to slide just a little bit, and that uh, also has dragged Delaware Valley down with them this week. Yeah, we, we've talked a few times on Friday pods about Wesley looking like a team that's you're playing with fire and maybe could get upset at some point, but just how all these close games didn't go their way last year, they are going their way this year, and, and there's something to be said for that. And I think you're absolutely right that Delaware Valley is the buoy that is lifting Wesley up at this point. Salisbury is the is the ceiling, right? Wesley can't go as high as, as Salisbury is because Salisbury uh, beat them fairly handily, but Wesley can't drop too far down because they beat Delaware Valley, and Delaware Valley's crushing everyone. My team that'll take a fall, uh, I'm like you, you know, all 25 teams on a, on a voter's ballot winning. It doesn't preclude movement, especially since Presto Sports software doesn't include a repopulate last week's vote button. So as much as I wanted to justify moving a UMHB or a Cortland down for winning close while teams around them blew others out, the wins were against good teams and I wanted to give them credit for beating someone good and those things cancel each other out. The only team I really bumped down from 20 to 25 was Case Western Reserve. The Spartans led Geneva 30-7, to but let the Golden Tornadoes close the gap to 30-23 to with just under 11 minutes left, and they had to hold on to win in Geneva, unlike, say, Harden-Simmons is 3-5. and For my off-the-beaten-path highlight, I'm headed back to the UMAC, which is one place I like to look for such things. That's where the Westminster Missouri Blue Jays recovered a fumble on a punt at midfield with just 21 seconds left in the half up at Minnesota Morris. Quarterback Bryce Mormon ran for 10 yards to put his team within scoring range, you would say, maybe at the 41-yard line with 13 seconds left in the quarter. Mormon's next pass fell incomplete, and Coach John Welty called on sophomore Tim Branicky to attempt a 58-yard field goal. He hit it for the longest field goal in D3 this season, shattering the school's previous record of 43 yards. He added another field goal later in the game, and Westminster beat Minnesota Morris 17-14. to 
I'm going to set up this announcerless highlight for you here because, you know, it's announcerless, but I want to get it out there. You're going to hear people go, whoa, at the beginning of this clip. That is people uh, realizing that the field goal unit is coming back out on the field, and then you'll hear the reaction, and then you'll hear a uh, fairly surprised public address announcer. Keith, that's about the loudest I've ever heard a visiting crowd in a crowd of 262 uh, cheer on that uh, that kick. Well, just as small crowds are not things we would necessarily highlight, I don't know if highlight is the right word for what I'm about to describe, but there was some pretty significant rain and wind that affected games in the Midwest on Saturday. It's why Mount Union scored a mere 27. But 27 would have been welcome at the paw, which beat Allegheny 8-6 to six in the slop. And look, Rain games are not great ones at which to be a spectator or to work the sidelines, but any player would tell you those are memorable. There are other difficult sports, but how many make you play wearing equipment in the heat, then in the pouring rain, and maybe later in the season, even in the snow? On Saturday, DePaul got on the board first with a touchdown and no extra point, and then a snap over the punter's head in the second quarter by Allegheny turned out to be the winning points. Allegheny managed a touchdown early in the fourth, but a pass to Austin French for a two-point conversion fell incomplete. It was a bit of a shot put ugly pass, but it got there and could have been the uh, the game tying play. Again, the ball on a rainy day, it's waterlogged, it's heavy, it feels different. You know, I don't know if games in gross weather warm your hearts like they do mine, but that's my off the beaten path highlight for week eight. It only seems appropriate, right, that a game like that could uh, could be decided on a bad snap over the head of the punter. Totally get that. Uh, so, yeah, uh, rain on Saturday from basically a swath across Illinois, Indiana, Ohio. I think we could uh, reasonably talk about uh, the weather being an issue at Illinois Wesleyan in a game where uh, Wash U beat Illinois Wesleyan by the score of 21 to nothing. Uh, similarly, in uh, in Indiana, where Rose Holman uh, had a... Uh, uh, came away with a win against Mount St. Joseph. Mount St. Joseph picking up its first loss of the game. Chaiten Tomlin, the star quarterback for MSJ, looking a little bit uh, human, a little bit mortal in that game. You mentioned, of course, the uh, the Mount Union-Heidelberg game at Heidelberg, and I don't know if it extended as far south and east as the John Carroll game at Marietta. I didn't have a chance to review the video of that game. Uh, the box score says light rain. Uh, of course, that could be much different at 1.30 than at 4.30 when a game ends. But, uh, you know, one of those days where you remember, of course, the year we had snow in the first round of the playoffs and uh, uh, Case Western Reserve went to Illinois Wesleyan and kind of had their way with IWU in the second half because it was just, you know, snow all over the place. Uh, yep. We haven't had a lot of weather weeks this year, but this uh, in that, uh, you know, that small part of the country was uh, sounded like it was significant. Yeah, and there, there's still weeks left, and sometimes the weather gets worse around this time of year. It's been a pretty balmy uh, October for most of the uh, the, the Northeast, Mid-Atlantic, and, and Midwest, and 
Uh, that's been great, it's, unless you're like a foliage watcher and you're like, come on now, can I get some reds and yellows? Uh, they're finally starting to come out. But um, it, it was definitely one of those weeks. I mean, you just look at the video of that DePaul-Allegheny game or Mount Union Heidelberg or some of the other schools that put their highlights up on YouTube and you watch those weather slop games. And again, you feel for the people. It's obviously like parents or just like super diehard students who are at these games with these big, giant, colorful umbrellas. And then there's like 64 empty seats. And then there's like two more students. And I, I think those are those are ugly games to be at. It's cold. You're wet. Uh, you really have to love the team you're watching to sit through it. But those ones, when you play in that one and you're like, you know, you get tackled and you slide 12 yards and, um, <laughs> you know, you you and your your friends and the guys on the team are like, you know, figuring out which places underneath your pads are the warmest. They're just great memories from those games. I remember practices in the rain were always fun. And then the snow games. Uh, if we get some of those later in the season, you where you are, Pat, in Minnesota, a little more likely to get some. Uh, probably first couple weekends of the playoffs, you know, you see him pretty often in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Ohio. Uh, you know, you don't see him quite as much down at Mary Harden Baylor or, or places uh, down down that end. But you do see weather games, and weather does affect the D three season. And it just is always um, amazing to me that you start football season and you're sweating your keister off underneath these pads you know sweat is dripping down your helmet and you try to like you know, i don't need to wear a bandana or something to keep it out of my eyes and then like by the end of the season you're either freezing you're wet and you're like you got to play no matter what i mean unless there's lightning football game's on Surprise! my most surprising result this week comes from the pacific northwest where puget sound defeated whitworth for the first time since the two teams moved into ncaa division three puget sound topping the pirates 34 to 23 once you dig into it it's understandable how this happened. That's because Whitworth's standout quarterback, Leif Erickson, did not play on Saturday. Connor Johnson, the backup, threw for 288 yards and ran for 51, but Whitworth punted on it three of its first six possessions, fumbled on two, and then threw an interception on the other one. The Pirates did hold UPS receiver Alvin Johnson to seven catches for a season-low 24 yards, but three of the seven catches were for touchdowns. Puget Sound's last win against Whitworth came in 1995. It's got to be hard to have seven catches for 24 yards. So three of them being uh, in the red zone probably probably explains it a little bit. Uh, you mentioned some of the big surprise scores that I noticed uh, off off a of Saturday's scoreboard. Um, you mentioned those when we were talking about the weather. I, I was surprised to see Mount St. Joseph and Illinois Wesleyan um, have low point totals, especially because Mount St. Joseph's quarterback uh, has been playing so well. Illinois Wesleyan has changed quarterbacks to try to get its offense going. Those were surprising to me, but my biggest surprise was out of the NESCAC. Wesleyan beating Amherst and Williams beating Trinity alone, not amazing. But Amherst and Trinity, usually the class of the conference and owners of stacks of 8-0 and and 7-1 and seasons. Remember, they used to play eight game slates. Those two teams losing on the same weekend, that's a shocker. Both fell to 4-3, and three, and since they play next week, one is going to lose again. Amherst in October lost three games, each by a field goal, twice in double overtime. The last time the Mammoths had a three-game losing streak, they weren't even called the – oh, I used that line a few podcasts ago. Never mind. Podcast 252 for that one. That's amazing that you can call that – you can just pull that out of thin air. Well, it was just last Monday's podcast. The last uh, last Saturday was the time where uh, where Hamilton beat Amherst. So I've, I've, I realize that. They still all run together for me. <laughs> uh I, 
we've talked about this before, right? But I have better memory of things that happened in 2009 than I do of things that happened in 2018. But I can occasionally remember what happened last week. Um, yeah, last Monday. I probably should get that one. You're right. <laughs> uh, I don't remember what I had for breakfast, though. <laughs> My stat of the week is from a team which was on the front page on Saturday night. So this uh, stat itself might not be news to everyone, but I'm talking about Mason Oppel, the dual threat quarterback for Hope. Hope with the win against Olivet on Saturday. He's a guy, he's a a big guy for a quarterback, and they run with him quite a bit, and they ran with him a lot on Saturday. 25 carries for 213 yards and two touchdowns in that win against Olivet. Uh, He had uh, runs of 50 and 41 yards. He had a a 12-yard touchdown. He had another touchdown on the afternoon. He's a big guy with, like, good speed in the MIAA. And, uh, you know, he also was 7 of 13 passing for 61 yards. But uh, it's that 25 carries for 213 yards, which, you know, Hope is not uh, an option team. You know, they are a uh, they're a, a non-option. What is it? What's a non-option team then? Uh, Pro style or but you're right, though. Those numbers make sense at a Salisbury at a Maine Maritime or a SUNY Maritime or a Ripon. One of those one of the places where you expect the quarterback to carry the ball that many times. This, you know, Hope has has uh, thrown the ball down the field plenty, and to to see a twenty five carry, two hundred thirteen yard day from a quarterback is uh, is stat of the week worthy. I agree. My stat of the week probably could have been an off the beaten path highlight, but I just love the symmetry in Nichols' fifty one forty eight four overtime win against University of New England. Both teams had a three hundred yard passer and a wide receiver with eleven or more catches. They each were penalized about 10 times for 100 yards. They each had two completely scoreless overtime periods. No wonder this one took so long to decide. But my favorite stats were averages of 5.5 and 5.7 yards per play for the game for both teams. That means on average, each team had a first down every two snaps, which makes sense because there are a whopping 57 first downs in this game. UNE had 32 and lost. Are we channeling your inner Warner Wolf there in that one? If you had UNE and 32 first downs, you lost. <laughs> wow, I didn't, I, have, uh, no, I didn't have a Warner Wolf. Uh, yeah, I, I know who that is, but I didn't have like a, a frame of uh, reference. That's like the 1%. If you are uh, one of the people who got that joke, you're in the 1% of our uh, podcast listeners, and we appreciate that. If you would have gave me a joke about the Action News theme since I was in Philly around that time or like some kind of Boston 80s thing, I would have been right on it. KYW, News Radio, whatever the numbers are. 60. <laughs> there we go. See. Your categories have become tiresome. Now's the time on Sprockets where we dance. Now is the time of the podcast where we go to Twitter and our Twitter question this week comes from Eddie Karekas. I'm just going to presume I'm pronouncing your name correctly because I didn't even look for a pronunciation guide on Twitter. That's at... Hey. What? Correct us if we're wrong. <laughs> At K-E-R-E-K-J-15, who replied to our tweet asking, which team not in position for a Pool A bid right now wins its conference and make the makes the tournament? And for purposes of discussing this question, we've kind of decided that this means that it's someone who is not currently in first place in a conference, but um, has to be in control of their own destiny, I think, because, um, you know, otherwise uh, you're, you're counting on somebody, a favorite to lose, and that's super unpredictable. This is also 
unpredictable, but at least it's something that can be discussed. Um, before we go into some of the other scenarios, I just want to talk about the ECFC for a minute, the Eastern Collegiate Football Conference. They, at the beginning of this season, uh, slipped into the last uh, spot in our conference rankings, uh, and uh, the UMAC moved above them. The ECFC lost Husson this year, and uh, they still have enough schools for an automatic bid because there's a two-year grace period before you uh, lose your automatic bid for not having seven teams. We're getting into the weeds here for a second, but the reason why I'm saying this is because the team that leads this conference right now is Dean College. Dean College is in the third year of a usually a four-year transition into NCAA Division III. So they are not eligible for the title, or at least they're not eligible for the automatic bid. The conference can award its title in whatever way it chooses, and it can award its automatic bid differently. The reason I say that is because they're in first place at 3-0, and 3-4 overall. SUNY Maritime and Gallaudet are 2-1 and apiece. Nobody in the conference currently has a winning record. Uh, somebody may well have a winning record by the time the season ends. Uh, SUNY Maritime ends with Gallaudet and Alfred State ends conference play and then uh, plays Mount St. Joseph in uh, week 11. Uh, Gallaudet just lost to Dean by 21 on Saturday. They are at SUNY Maritime and at Ma Anna Maria to end the season. So Gallaudet could well go 4-4, four and 4-1 four, four and one win that conference and uh, be within the 500-mile radius of Mount Union, for example. That's uh, not exactly what you're looking for, but that was a scenario I thought I'd throw out before I threw it over to Keith. Well, yeah, I, I, that is an interesting scenario, and it's worth talking about because, say, SUNY Maritime, for example, um, they're 3-4, and four, but they've been outscored by almost 100 points, 82 points for 173 against yeah. um, Gallaudet at Mount Union is not a game anybody wants to see, not even um, – the most diehard Mountain Union fan that loves to watch a, a game that's 60 to zero at halftime. Like uh, that's not good. And there's going to be somebody from St. Thomas and Harden Simmons and some of the other schools that, that are, uh, you know, going to get, get, not have a chance at making the playoffs, but have two or three losses and be like, man, we, we could at least, um, you know, go there and, and, and play a competitive game. So um, this is where we get into that discussion where the playoffs are in D3 set up for access to give every team access to the postseason by virtue of an automatic bid. And right now we don't have any uh, pool B bids, which are the bids that are set aside for teams that don't have access. So D3 is in theory perfect in terms of access right now, but it's not going to produce a perfect bid by putting the 32 strongest teams into the same um, tournament. So we've all known that, but if you're, if you're new to us or if you just like to hear us repeat it every year um, as a reminder, that was your your public service. I also think before we directly answer the question, there are some matchups or some conferences that technically a team is not in first. Empire eight. Brockport is trailing Cortland by one game. There, um, Brockport is three and zero in the conference, six and one overall. Cortland seven and zero, four and zero in the conference. So technically, Brockport could be the answer here. Brockport and Cortland face each other, as we've already mentioned on this podcast. But it also doesn't feel like it's in the spirit of the question because Brockport's only trailing because um, because they've played one fewer conference game. I do think, though, we've spent a lot of time in recent weeks pumping Cortland back up, and it could be over next week when, when Brockport beats them or if Brockport beats them. Uh, the Golden Eagles on the season have given up 75 points. 33 of those were in week one, and they would love to win next week so we can stop mentioning that that week one loss to Hobart. 
There are some interesting conference races, and I think here's a conference. I mean, any discussion of crazy conference races this season has to start with the the North Coast. And right now, even though you see um, four teams who are at least four and two in the conference, DuPont Wittenberg are four and two, um, and Wabash, Ohio Wesleyan, Denison, five and one. Wabash is comfortably in control because they've beaten Ohio Wesleyan and Denison. They've got easy games the next two weeks. Next two weeks, but they finish with the Mona Bell game against DePaul. And if DePaul is able to stay in the mix long enough um, to to still only have two conference losses, they may, uh, depending on how other results shake out, have a chance to spoil Wabash's fun in uh, in week eleven. Wittenberg, by virtue of a loss to Denison this past week, uh, went from basically being in control of that one to uh, to now. Uh, Almost, I mean, I'm not out of the mix because uh, they're they're not done either. They'll play Ohio Wesleyan in Week 11, so they may have some say in how things shake out at the end. But uh, Wittenberg went from in really good shape a couple of weeks ago to uh, to losses to back to back losses to Wabash Denison, and now uh, four and three overall, four and two. So I think there there are still five teams in the mix in the North Coast, and although Wabash is in control, you could see someone play their way in because not only. Are there a bunch of teams grouped at the top, but there are still some crossover games between them. Another conference that's interesting and that we've been talking about here uh, bef- uh, off the air is a conference that has a lot of games that have yet to be played. That's the Midwest Conference. But it also looks a little bit odd this year, of course, because Grinnell, uh, you know, uh, called a, an end to its football season shall we say after three games so the uh, south division in the midwest conference has uh, a, a lot of teams with uh, just two games played in uh, games that count in the standings lake forest and st norbert uh, look like uh, one of them will be representing the north division in that title game which comes up uh, in week 11 but basically i think the reason why i pulled this game out is we've or this conference out is we've got four teams that could all qualify for this championship game and, and a lot of teams still have control of their own destiny here the the midwest conference is one of the uh interesting ones at all times because there will always be a play-in game or at least as long as there are 12 teams in the conference or as it were 11 um there's a play-in game between the north division and south division winner in week 11 so that's always one that qualifies as a team uh, or as a conference where the team could play its way in so thanks for uh, sending out that question we appreciate it eddie if you are uh wanting to ask the question of us on the podcast you know what to do we say this every monday Keep an eye out on Sunday for when we throw that uh, the bat signal on Twitter, and we will, you know, take the best questions. Sometimes the best two questions. Maybe we'll answer some questions in Twitter as well. You can always count on us to do that. And we missed another good one, Pat. Um, Wartburg still has to play Co and Central, who are both hot on the Knights' heels. And uh, if you're still not used to calling it the American Rivers Conference, join the club. It's formerly known as the uh, the Iowa Conference or the IAC, but it's the uh, it's the ARC now. And Wartburg is way out in front, seven and zero, five and zero in the conference. Co and Central are next two opponents, and they're both one loss in the conference. So this is that time of year, Pat, where every week is important. There will be games, there will be upsets, and and exciting sort of clashes in each conference that uh, that changed the scope of things so like that that Wittenberg Denison game or like this upcoming Randolph Macon Bridgewater game or or um, 
you know, Cortland and Brockport. Pretty much from here on out, there will be games that, um, you know, that decide conferences. Mary Harden Baylor still has to play Texas Lutheran. And, um, you know, they're, they're pretty much every conference uh, has games like this where, uh, you know, November 2nd, November 9th, November 16th, we're going to see. Um, we won't see a week like this where, where there's a couple of exciting games and then a lot of top 25 teams all winning and, and things going as expected. I think this was probably as, uh, as chalk as it'll get for the next, uh, the next three weeks. Right. Uh, Bridgewater fans who are wondering why your team isn't in our top 25. Well, Texas Lutheran fans are probably doing the same. There hasn't been any spot opened up uh, recently for that to happen. My final word before we get out of here is about also about stuff to keep an eye on. Keith uh, just mentioned some of the big games coming up. I want to mention that uh, this week, uh, in the middle of the week, we will have a mock regional ranking, I guess would be the, the right way to put it. Uh, Greg Thomas, our bracketology guru and poll watcher, and uh, the guy who also runs quick hits for us is uh, going to put something together midweek. He's been mocking up uh, a regional ranking already for a couple of weeks now, and uh, we'll have one a public mock regional ranking that's a lot of qualifiers and then of course the first one that comes from the ncaa committee will come uh, a little bit after that you'll see that next week on uh, ostensibly on wednesday november 6th that is when it is first scheduled to come out and if the concept of the regional ranking is new to you uh, look through the playoff faq i will add the playoff faq to the notes of this podcast episode and you can look for it there and this was D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast number 254, season 13, episode 16, released on the 28th of October, 2019. Thanks for listening and keep an eye on the rest of our coverage throughout the week. If you like our podcast, this is what you do with podcasts you like. You rate it in Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or iHeartRadio or, you know, any of the places you get podcasts. If you get podcasts from a kiosk on the corner, give us a five-star rating there. That will help other football fans find it. You can leave comments on the specific episode on the blog page for us as well. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter. You use the D3FB hashtag. We will find it. I'm at D3Football. Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Additional audio in this week's episode from UMHB Athletics, St. John Fisher Athletics, ESPN Central Texas, Frank Rossi, and Minnesota Morris Athletics. Our theme music is by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at djmentos.com. And his music is in a lot of the other things that we do musically on this podcast as well. Thanks, of course, to everybody who helped us put this podcast and previous podcasts together. And thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on d3football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. Sorry, you stayed to the end of the podcast this week and there's no cool bonus anything. Next week, though. I mean, I could go get that trombone. There'll be a time to uh, to look at all this stuff and to reflect, but now's not the time. <laughs>